We do praise you today, Lord, and do desire to worship you as we look into your word and see, just as has already been prayed, that uh, the richness and the depth of it uh, leaves us in awe of you and what you have for us. And we desire to worship you as we see that in your word. We commit our time to you, asking that you would have your way amongst us, illuminate our, our thinking, our minds, that we might find application and know more of what you have revealed, that it may be applicable in our lives as well. So we commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. One other thing before we get into the book of Romans here. Uh, one thing in terms of that Sharam, is the guy's name, shared at the conference is that we tend to be too too shy, too too hesitant because we're afraid to offend a Muslim. He said, if God gives you the opportunity and you have that contact, be bold. Don't don't let that stop you. In other words, he gave his own testimony, and he said, no matter what you say in sharing the gospel, you're going to offend them. As they, Mary and I work with a number of Muslims. As they begin to see what Christianity is, then they start asking, tell me more. Yes, yes. And that's precisely what we're after, is to live Christianity in front of them sufficiently that they want to know more. Yes. They're not going to be very excited about you impressing on them, but when they ask for more, right. they're really interested. Yeah, he gave his own testimony. He said when somebody first shared the gospel with him, he had all these questions and all these searchings, mm-hmm. but when that person shared the gospel, he said, I was offended. <laughs> I was mad at them. But it stuck. In other words, he could not sleep at night. The words that were shared, he could not get rid of them. And it offended him more, but eventually it brought him to the point of, maybe this is true. And it's a process. It is not just a three minutes, you know, add water, stir it, it's all done. It is a long process. Yeah, it may take several encounters. Yeah. So be bold, he said. Connie. And along those lines, but not, um, and that goes for all. Yes. Souls because I just finished Rosaria Champagne Butter's first book. Oh. Which is the secret yeah. of an unlikely convert. She was a radical feminist, uh, a lesbian, um, uh, into queer theology, tenured professor at Syracuse University, and she was one the same way. By a couple, she was, had written a letter against promise keepers, this gentleman was a pastor. He chose to respond to her, and they responded in striking of a friendship, she said. Right. He didn't make the two mistakes that most Christians make, and that's on his first visit with me. He didn't invite me to church, and he didn't try and save. And they yeah. just struck up. Right, of, yeah. You know, and, and that was how she was eventually the Lord used him. Yeah. In fact, if we present the gospel, the gospel offends not right. just the Muslim, but anyone. And if we're not getting a reaction, then maybe we're not presenting the true gospel. I mean, we don't do it deliberately. We try to do it in love, and we try to present it in an understandable way, but the gospel offends. But we don't need to be offensive. In exactly. Our, and, that, that's and my point. Like the non-believer is screaming and shaking fists and right. yelling and all the rest. We present yeah. Christ and let him present it through us, but not... Don't be obnoxious, Christian. No, no. But be bold. In other words... Relationship. And the other thing to remember is that 
both Telegram organizations say on the average it takes seven exposures of the gospel. You never yep. know whether you're number one or number one. That's right. That's the right. point is, as you're saying, be bold, yep. do it out of relationship. And love. Yeah. One more, and then we got to get into the Romans. <laughs> Actually, this is Romans. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. The, the one thing I was going to say was I had seen a, an old clip about an interview between Billy Graham and Woody Allen. Yep. And uh, Woody Allen would keep kind of needling Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was gracious, he was accommodating, he spoke the gospel, he spoke the truth in love. And it was a most amazing because it wasn't confrontational on Billy Graham's part. He wasn't out to skewer. I'm going to get you here. But he simply presented the gospel in such a winsome way that, uh, I mean, I think the audience, as I listened to the, 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 you know, they were rooting for Billy Graham because... He was sincerely interested in the salvation of Woody Allen's soul. It wasn't right. a, a trophy. It wasn't a battle. Yeah. It wasn't a battle. He was inviting him. And if we behave like that, but when you see people yelling and screaming and waving their Bibles in the air, and yep. that's hatred. That's not yeah. the way of the Lord. Yep, exactly. So... Well, that's the message of the Book of Romans. So we've had it. Theologically. <laughs> okay. So, in the Book of Romans, that we're going to get back in, let's just review quickly. We've looked at an introduction. We've, we're in the major section, provision of God's righteousness. We completed the first subsection, major subsection, condemnation, because if you don't see your need... For Christ, then you will not pursue Christ because of our nature. So he spends time there. We're in the section called Justification, beginning in verse 21 through the end of chapter 5. Just a quick review. Last week I mentioned that this particular passage and Romans in itself is very, very important. We need a grasp. Every believer should be in this class. <laughs> Every believer needs an understanding of not only this passage, but the entire book of Romans. Writers continually say that Romans is the heart of the whole Bible, and it is. Now, it's not easy, more theological than it is like narrative literature, but it's very, very important. It gives us the heart and essence of what God is communicating because one of the main themes is how to have a relationship with God, and we're in that section right now. Romans, if it's the heart of the Bible, obviously is the heart of the New Testament as well. And this particular passage, six little verses here, one sentence, is the heart of Romans. So we want to be careful with it, take time with it, understand it, and like I said, it's This is one of the most difficult passages as well. It's not written to the unbeliever. The unbeliever reading this is not going to have a clue as to what it's saying in general, particularly in the culture today. It is written, the whole book is written for believers so that we can understand reality and we can understand the gospel so that we can more accurately present it. And if we have confidence in that, then we can be bold. So this little passage you might say, is the heart of the whole Bible, gives us the heart of God. As Lewis Johnson says, if Romans is a little Bible, then 3, 21 through 26 is a little Romans. So it's the heart of the whole book. We're looking at 
this doctrine, broad doctrine, we're going to get into more specifics of justification, and we have the provision of it. That's how I titled that little paragraph, God providing justification. So we have to understand what that word means. We're going to get a little bit into it today. The word righteousness and justification are the same word in the Greek language. I'm going to show you that. Okay? It just depends on the English context, whether they use justification or righteousness. Justification, you might say, is the provision of righteousness, or it's the declaring of righteousness. That's what justification is. So the words are the same in the Greek language. I'll show them to you. So this first part of it, we have the display of righteousness. At least that's the way I am describing it, 21 through 24. And I kind of interchange the words there. Verse 21 is the display of justification. The word that Paul uses is manifestation. Another way of looking at it is it's a display. It's revealing, you might even say, but it's even more of a revealing. It's something that is visible and actually can be observed. So we'll look at that. We'll begin with verse 21. I put it in chart form. I gave you an overview last week of not only this particular passage, but the entire section that goes all the way to the end of chapter 5, so we can put everything in its context. So this is the same chart I showed you last week, and I changed the title a little bit, but 21 through 26, the display of righteousness. And it has a lot of parts to it. I laid those parts out so that we don't, get bogged down. Remember I said it's one, in fact, it's one sentence. So if you read through it, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, comma, and it goes on and it goes on through verse 22, through verse 23, 24, and I've got the three dots there. They're not three periods, Linda. (laughs) I knew you were joking. the, The passage goes on. I didn't want the font to be so small that you wouldn't be able to see it, so I put it on two slides. And in uh, in the Greek text, let me go back here, semicolon, and then verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. In the English, it's so long that the translators break it up a little bit. In reality, it doesn't break up until we get to the end of verse 26. There's the period. That's why... We have the italicized, this was, they have to make it into a sentence. So they supply, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God. But in reality, there would be a semicolon or a comma after faith, and it just continues to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed, semicolon, and then it goes on. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness, etc., etc., it doesn't end until you get the end of verse 26. So there's a lot of little pieces here, a lot of little parts. That's why last week I wanted to give you a big picture of it, and I went through it in more survey fashion, and I tried to summarize it with a chart that we'll get back into uh, today, and we'll keep laying out that chart. Hopefully you'll see it visually. I'm trying to reflect it in the outline as well. The outline is slightly different. The outline is what you would call more exegetical in terms of trying to lay out the structure of the passage, 
phrase by phrase as it is written, but it has lots of parts. That's what makes it a little difficult. It has a lot of theological terms that we'll have to be careful and try to define and explain each of them. And hopefully the goal is after we have gone through this paragraph, you'll understand it and know what it's trying to communicate. And that's kind of my job to, to do that, that part of it. And once you see it, then you can see how all the parts fit together and you can understand the main thing that it's talking about. So, in this sentence, let me go back to somebody, who was it, Linda or Connie, I think, summarized very well last week the first independent clause. And I noticed, or we noticed, that there's only one independent clause. And if you have an independent clause, that in a very complicated sentence like this, there's some subordinate clauses in there, but the independent clause gives you the essence of everything else. Everything else is just supporting or giving us more detail concerning that independent clause. Can anyone else see it? To be reminded, besides Connie, she did it last week and did an excellent job. No, because four is a subordinating conjunction. Okay. Bruce said it's the righteousness of God. Okay. He's too timid to say it loudly, so you have to. Yeah. All right. Well, I can see how you would mistake. That's right. The Snyders. The Snyders have got it. Yeah. Actually, it would begin with the but. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's the complete, total, independent clause. Because the, but now, apart from the law, is not a subordinate clause, so it's a phrase that goes with it. So, start with the beginning, it goes all the way to the comma. That's the independent clause. Now, the heart of the independent clause is the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's the essence of everything else. So this idea of God's righteousness has been manifested. Everything else is going to tell us something about God displaying or manifesting this righteousness, whatever it is. So the entire rest of the, the, the five other sentences, five other sentences, verses, are displayed. Expanding that. Okay. Okay. And I tried to summarize how it does that last week, and we'll go at piece by piece, starting with verse 21. So really, the but now is kind of introductory. This righteousness he's selling us is apart from the law. That's the first thing that he tells us. In fact, the but now is at the very beginning but the most emphatic part in the whole sentence is apart from the law. Doesn't the but now also to begin verse further on in verse twenty-six? It says at the that he's he's stressing condemnation, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but now and at the right. So in fact, the twenty-six goes back this way. Yeah, the but now. In fact, I've got a quote. Let's go back just to verse one. The but now, I think, is a Kind of a radical trans- transition. Everything has been negative. Everything has been condemnation, wrath, judgment, hopelessness, depravity. But now, whew, in fact, the quote I've got kind of says that. In other words, but now everything is different in Christ. In other words, 
There's been something provided and it's on display. It's available. You can see it. And it was, in fact, the stress is it was on display on the cross. Jesus crucified on a public highway. Everyone could see it. And if they just took time to understand what it was, this was the ultimate sacrifice that every sacrifice in the Old Testament looked forward to. So he can say, but now everything has changed. All right? And let's look at that. Stedman says, in the opening words of Romans 3.21, but now, da 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 you can almost hear a sigh of relief. In other words, oh man, whew, this depressing section of condemnation, depravity, sin, and lostness. But now, you can almost hear a sigh of relief. Now, after God's appraisal of man's efforts to achieve some standing before him, Come God's words of relief. That's the but now. God's total answer in this little paragraph of one sentence, God's answer to man's total failure. In other words, there's nothing man can do. Situation is totally hopeless, but now there is hope. But now God has done something to provide a way to have a relationship with him. So it's almost like we're summarizing all of world history. We're summarizing all that has taken place up to now. And now with what Christ has done, everything can be changed. In fact, that's why receiving Christ and becoming a believer is a conversion and a transformation of heart on an individual basis. But Now a provision is made such that all of a culture can be changed if enough of the culture responds to Christ. So he's looking at it in a broad sense in terms of all of world history, really. Then, before the but now, everything was preparatory for the coming of Christ. All of world history, all of the Old Testament, was just to prepare the world for what God would do. So that man would see that there's nothing he can do. Even when God creates a nation, that nation fails. Even when God deals with um, individual powerful believers, they're just, apart from God working, there's no hope. It's all preparatory. It's all downhill. Now, everything is contingent on the death of Christ. Everything's contingent on that sacrifice. Then we were under wrath, that's uh, 118, and the world was under wrath. Now there's the possibility of being in Christ. Everything can change in Christ. Then we were under law, or at least Israel was under law. Now there's a radical transformation. Now what? There's the possibility of being under grace. Then we were dead in our sins. That comes from Ephesians, dead in our sins and trespasses, but it's also part of Romans. There's the possibility of becoming alive in Christ, possibility of transformation, possibility of radical change. Then Romans says uh, we are all unrighteous, or there's none righteous, verse 10, chapter 3. This passage, but now God has made a provision that we can be declared 
righteous. That's justification, to be declared righteous. So they could be declared righteous back then, too, because of their faith, because of the forbearance. Only anticipating. With the forbearance. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that's later in the okay. passage. Exactly. Yeah, that's what he's going to explain. You're always ahead of me, and now you're ahead of Paul. <laughs> Just then, you had a God. <laughs> be careful. Yeah. Then we were in darkness, also in Ephesians, but also depravity of mind in Romans chapter one in darkness. Now there's the possibility of light, radical change. That's the but now. And then we were condemned. That's the end of the section that we just looked at. Now there's the possibility of being justified or justification. That's what this paragraph deals with, is justification. How do we receive this justification that is provided, that is available, and in fact, on display, manifested? Okay, so that's the but now. So we have a display, verse 21, and the first part of it, we need to get into what is the nature of this righteousness, and he starts to explain what this righteousness is like. So I title it The Nature of Righteousness. First thing that he says, but now apart from the law. Now he's already discussed this and he's already shown that observing the law, you you can't do it because perfection is required and no one can live up to the standard of the law. And we saw the purpose of the law in the last portion of that section we were looking at. The purpose of the law was never to save. If the purpose of the law were never to save, then it would be a total failure because no one could live up to it and no one would be saved. That's not the purpose of the law. One of the purposes that Paul brings out is to reveal that we can't do what God requires. We can't meet the standard. That's one of the purposes of the law. So it has to be apart from the law. And in fact, there's nothing in man So man cannot do anything. So we are in a hopeless situation. We are, and as a result, we stand condemned, but it has to be apart from the law. And he's saying the righteousness of God, it's apart from that. It has to be. Otherwise, no one could be saved. And it would have been just good that God just eliminated mankind with Adam and Eve. And if he wanted to start over, he could have done that, made a new creation. But, and by the way, in Genesis 3.15, he promises that he's going to deal with sin. And in Christ, this is the but now. This is the but now of Genesis 3.15. This is the crushing of the head of the serpent. But it took the wounding of the heel of the seed of the woman. That's an allusion to the crucifixion. But it's apart from law because the purpose of the law was never to save and man could not be saved from it. So we have a display of righteousness. One of the things that this passage is telling us, the very first thing, is that it has to be apart from law. So that's where that little phrase fits in. It's just telling us more about this display of righteousness. We'll just add as we get to the passages. Now, I wanted you to notice, I've shown you this before, this is kind of a, I guess you could say, along the lines of studying words in Scripture, a little bit of how you do this, and 
understanding language, basically, and how words are used. Words, and not just this word, not just biblical words, but every word, if you think about it, words, first of all, words have a range of meaning. In other words, they don't just have specific definitions, if you will, or specific meanings. All words have a range of meaning. Some words have a wide or a broad range of meaning. Got that? Last Tuesday, I was doing some hermeneutics, and I used the example, and I do this in the course that I teach. What is the meaning of the word trunk? An elephant, trees, car. Okay, what do you need in order to understand the meaning of that word? You need a context. All right? So words in themselves don't have meanings by themselves. They're used in different ways in different contexts. Now this, you know, the word trunk has a wide range of meaning that spans a lot of different areas. Not every word has that wide a range of meaning. Some words have a narrow range, but that's the nature of language. That's the nature of words. So also law. So when you have a context, you're talking about, uh, go get the tire out of the trunk. Well, there's enough clues there that you're not getting the tire out of that tree, or it's not inside of an elephant, right? It's not in an attic. Well, it might be in a garage, but if you're talking about a you know, go get the car out of the trunk. Uh, it's probably a car. You know, there's enough clues there. Sometimes words are ambiguous and not clear, but in general, good writers will give you enough clues that you can understand how they're using specific words. All right? That's true of the Bible. That's true of communication. That's true of how we use words when we speak to one another. So if you say something along the lines, uh, the boy was climbing up the trunk... Might be a little ambiguous, but if you say he was climbing up the trunk to get an apple, there's enough clues in the text that, oh, okay, your mind goes, oh, you see that tree. You don't see the elephant. And you don't think of that compartment in the back of the car. You don't, you know, you you have enough clues in the context. So also, well, the word law, the Greek is namas, and it has different ways that it's used In fact, every one of the ways that I use as an example of how the word is used comes out of the book of Romans by the same writer. We do this. We use the same word in different contexts, sometimes in slightly different ways. So also the word law. All right. I don't want to spend too much time out. We've we've seen this already when we looked at law in chapter two, but it can refer to the Pentateuch. And I'm going to come back to it, but I think we have an example in uh, the verse that we're looking at here. Not the first usage, but the second usage. Do you see it in verse 21? See how it's used? What in the context leads me to conclude that he is referring to the Pentateuch here? The law and the prophets. That little phrase, the law and the prophets. That occurs in several places. Jesus even uses it, the law and the prophets. And when he's referring to the law and the prophets, what is he referring to? The first five books of the Bible and everything else, including Joshua. Joshua would be a historical prophet, the rest of the writings. 
Sometimes Jesus says the law and the prophets and the writings. Now he's divided the Old Testament into three parts. But he's using the word law to refer to the first five books, the Pentateuch, and the law and the prophets. Now he's referring to another major section that still includes Joshua, but now he's separating some of those books that were called the Ketubim, or the writings. All right, and they included Psalms and Proverbs, the poetic books, and a few others. Uh, I think Esther is among them, if I remember right. Book of Daniel is among them, one of the prophetic books in the writings. But the word "law" in the in that context, the law and the prophets and the writings, is referring to the Pentateuch. That's what we have at the end of verse twenty-one. What about the first usage? Apart from the law, in the general moral law that we all that kind of is a broad, overarching being a good person. Okay, I'm gonna have to disagree with that one. I'm gonna have to disagree with that one. Oh no, I can't. She's crushed. How about the Mosaic Covenant? This is a possibility, but probably the Old Testament generally. Because in verse 19 and 20, he's referring back, and what did he just quote? Remember? Remember all of those quotations were where? They weren't out of the Pentateuch. And he refers to all of that as the law, mainly out of the Psalms, but what else? Isaiah. So he's referring to the law that includes books like Isaiah, books like the Psalms, and he's calling that the law. And there's lots of other places where, even in Paul, and even in the book of Romans, where he uses it in that broader sense of all of the Old Testament itself. Sometimes more specifically, and I think in uh, 220 and 223, more the Mosaic Covenant or the Mosaic Law within the Pentateuch. Now, I don't want to spend time going through all of them, but... Sometimes it does refer to the Ten Commandments, Linda, chapter 7, verse 7 through 9. Yeah, so, you know, you're you're on the right track. Could refer even to the Mosaic time frame or dispensation, chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. This is all by Paul. These are all in the book of Romans. And even in one verse, the same verse, he uses the word namas, or law, in two different ways. One to refer to the Pentateuch specifically, and one to refer to the Old Testament, more than likely the Old Testament in general. But elsewhere, Ten Commandments, Mosaic Dispensation, Civil Law, he's referring to a particular Roman civil law, Romans 7, 1 through 3. He's using the analogy there. He uses the example of the marriage relationship, and he basically cites some aspects of that marriage law in Roman law, so civil law. It's also used of moral law. This is what uh, Mary Lee was referring to, kind of this general, overall, God's moral law that is all-encompassing. Some of it he's revealed specific in the Mosaic law and more specific in the Ten Commandments, so a moral law. And this is what is ingrained in the Gentile in 2.14. In other words, there's a law within him that God has put there. That's a moral law. 
He's without the Pentateuch. He's without the Mosaic Covenant. But he's not escaping from moral law. It's built in. And Paul uses it in 2.14 in that way. All of these are the way that Paul uses the word nama. So it has all of these shades and different ways that it can be used depending on the context. And there's enough in the context to kind of come to these conclusions. Make sense? And by the way, if you do a word study, which the first thing that you do is look up all of the usages of the words in the Bible or in the New Testament. In this case, if you're looking at namas, you're looking at the New Testament. Break them down as how is he using these. Now you're developing a range of meaning. So now you have a basis to be able to say, well, I think Paul is using it in this way in verse 21. Number eight, he uses it in an even broader sense to include kind of a, a principle. And New American Standard in some of the versions actually even translates namas as principle in 3.27 and 28. A principle of law and a principle of grace. The word namas is used there. See that? Is that helpful? In studying Bible words? Actually in communicating. Communicating with one another. Alright? Okay, key terms. So the law should be Old Testament and the Pentateuch. In that same uh, verse. Same verse. So, but now, this righteousness of God is apart from uh, the Old Testament in general or law in this broader sense. The law of which he has just quoted in verses 10 through 18. It's apart from that. So you can't observe anything specific or in that broad sense, obey the Mosaic Covenant, or in an even broader sense in terms of things that the rest of the Bible, Old Testament, speaks of. So Mary if, if it were given, you know, I was looking at my translation here, and it first law, apart from the law, is lowercase, which is why I was assuming a very broad yes. application. And then when I see a capital law, then I'm immediately narrowing it down to a much more specific. Yeah, New American Standard takes it the way I'm taking it and capitalizing it in terms of the Old Testament. And you will find it in lowercase and other places as well. When it's not referring to Ten Commandments, um, Mosaic Covenant, Old Testament. So let's take a closer look at this. In fact, that's as far as we'll get. This first major theological term, very, very important. Now, we've already defined it, but let me remind you of the roots of this, because this word is going to be used and translated using different English words. And I want you to be aware that we're dealing with the same root word. In in Greek, it's the same word. It's just used either as a noun or as a verb or sometimes as an adjective, different forms of it. But it's the same word, that the word righteousness. So let's take a look at it. First of all, the terms. It can be, and here they are, dikaios. There it is transliterated in the parentheses can mean righteous and just. So it has to do with a relationship to a standard. And if it's a moral standard, then it deals with justice. In other words, you're in a right relationship in a legal sense to a legal standard, and you can be described as just or righteous. In other words, you have a right standing before that standard and 
Ultimately, it's the standard that God has established, or God himself. There's also a, what is, I guess this would be a, like an adjectival usage, dikaiusune. It's translated righteousness. It's a descriptive word. It's something that is, okay, it's a noun. Yeah, all right. But it's used more in a descriptive way. Both of them are nouns, by the way. Righteous, uh, first one is a noun. This is actually the noun form, dikaios. So noun, two nouns, one of them were adjectival. I guess we could debate which one. Here's the verb form, dikaio. It's to declare righteous, but most often it'll be translated justify. So when you see the word justify, justification, it's the same word as righteousness, except it has the verbal idea. In other words, to make something or to declare something righteous or to put something in a right relationship with a standard. Here's another word that we'll come across, not in this paragraph, but later on as we get further in, justification. And notice it's the same root word root, dikaiosis, or dikaiosis, rather. But it's out of the same root, same uh, word group. So the idea of justification, the idea of righteousness, closely related. To justify means to put in a right relationship or to put in a right position in relationship to a law, and in this case, God's law, in this context. See that? Uh, the main thing I wanted you to see is the verb most often is translated justify. And what part of speech, what kind of word is this one? Like? You know, I'm an engineer, I don't know grammar. Justification is a noun. Okay, it's another noun, but it's the same root. I want you to see that, because we'll come across this again. So the word to justify has the same idea, except it, in some cases the verbal idea to make something in a right standing, make it righteous. And it occurs very frequently, the word forms, for example, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. There's the first occurrence, verse 21. And then verse 22, so it's this is one of the most important words. By the way, this is one of the most important words in all of the book of Romans. The whole book of Romans deals with God providing righteousness. Verse 22, even, so he's going to expand the idea of righteousness, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So now he's going to introduce how we receive it how it's displayed, how we can come into a relationship. It's through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, the emphasis on trusting, believing. But there is no distinction. That goes back to what we looked at. There, and he's going to expand that in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's chapters 1 through the middle of chapter 3. No distinction. We're all condemned. We're all falling short. We're all in need. All have sinned. But the belief part reverses that. And then here we have verse 24, being justified. That's that same word group, except this is a participle. So it's the verb form, participleized, I guess. Is that a, <laughs> made into a, it's the verbal, well, a participle is a verbal adjective. So it has that verbal idea and it has an adjective idea in it. Being justified, but it's that same Dikaiao, except it's in a participle. So what would it be? What form would it say then? 
It's a participle. What do you mean, what form? Yeah, how would you say it? Deep pi, is it just deep pi out? No, uh, can't remember how, I can't remember the ending there. I'll have to, I'll look it up for you. I'll get it for you. Being justified, and then later on in verse 25, uh, we have dikaios asune, that word that we looked at already, righteousness. Then at, towards the bottom of verse 26, again, so the word dikaios asune occurs several times in there, four times, at the present time, so that he would be just. There's the noun form. In other words, he is the, he is the standard. He is the righteous standard. Everything is measured according to him. It's translated just. So the English kind of uses two different words to describe this same concept. You could even translate it that he would be righteous. You could translate it that way to be legitimate. And also, not only just, but the justifier, the same part. Well, actually, it's a different participial form as the one that we saw in verse 24 and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I just wanted to see that this is all part of the same family, the same word group. You got that? You see that? So the idea of justification has to do with the idea of righteousness. And we'll expand that as we get further into the passage. So those are the terms. The usage of dikaiasune, which occurs four times in that sentence. And maybe I had to stop here. Uh, yeah, that's a good place to stop. We'll come back and I'll give you the usage next week. The reason I'm doing this is we want to be very careful and precise in order to put all of the pieces together so that we can understand what admittedly is a very complicated a difficult sentence that goes six verses. So let's close in a word of prayer, and then I'll add a closing application here. Who wants to close for us? Craig. Father God, just thank you for the gift that you have given us, um, especially during this time of year that we celebrate your death and resurrection. You paid the price. You have said without the blood, we can never sin. Or that cost you cannot fathom, but we want to accept it. Just thank you for this free gift that you have given. Lord, we just pray that as we go out from here, that um, we will be witnesses for you, Lord, that people will see you through our eyes. We just ask that you'll give us the words to say. We pray this in your name. Amen. One of the applications we can draw is we have been declared righteous. In other words, we have been declared basically on a status as if we had never sinned. We are in Christ, we meet the standard, not on our own, but we have been declared to have met the standard. Past tense. Yes, past tense. So, let us continue to grow in that righteousness. We're not given righteousness, we are declared righteous. And the Christian life is growing more and more to be more and more Christ-like. And this should motivate us out of thankfulness. As Craig prayed, that you know, we praise God for justifying us or declaring us righteous. Motivate us to uh, live more according to what we've been declared.